Well, it's good to be with you uh, tonight. Tonight is part five in the uh, Relationship Wise series, so we are ending up tonight, and uh, it's been a really good series. I was listening to last week's with Pastor Ken, and I saw Pastor Ken, where is he at? I saw Pastor Ken. There he is, Pastor Ken and Sharon, and I just wanted to echo with him, the resource that they recommended, The Road Back to You, uh, is really excellent. If you are uh, an Enneagram person, I was thinking when I was listening to them talk, if you Google, uh, if you're a self-awareness person and you Googled your numbers, uh, sometimes people have a little bit of a, a, a negative thing happen because they'll Google and they'll be like, oh, my wife is this and I'm this, and there are certain pairings that are more difficult than others in this arrangement. And uh, I just want to encourage you, uh, my wife is a nine, she's a peacemaker, uh, I'm an eight, which is just every psychopath that's ever been born. <clears throat> and uh, if you Google that, it says these two people should never ever in a million years get married. And we are working it out, we have learned to love each other, and I just want to, I just want to encourage you, if you Google yours and you're like, okay, we made a huge mistake, how come we didn't know this? Like God can work it out, all of them are an expression of the image of God, and uh, just some of them take a little bit more work, but the good news is, uh, you know, you get to make up more, and that can be fun too, so you got that going for you. Uh, but I encourage you, that resource really, really is good and excellent and, and wonderful job last week. Tonight, our conversation, we're going to be talking about uh, gender, and we're going to attempt to stick pretty closely to the relationship-wise uh, series and trying to think about the reality of gender, the purpose of gender, and a little bit of the implications of that for our marriage relationship. And uh, I know that we have a lot of friends here that... Uh, are thinking through some of these issues. Do you think, why well, I have issues about things like transgenderism and gender dysphoria and, and how I might relate to that with my family or somebody I know that is, that is thinking about that or that is affecting their life. At the end of the time tonight, I am going to share some resources with you that may be helpful if that is something that you are thinking through. Or maybe it is just something that you want to think through. But tonight, really how we're going to approach this, and some of it will have a dual use, is we want to talk about the reality of gender, both from a biological and a theological perspective, so you can understand that that may have some application to the, the other conversation. But we really want to think about it for ourselves and how we can lean into gender when it comes to marriage and our other relationships. And I, you're going to hear me tonight try to do a really kind of difficult tension and dance. And what I mean by that is that we want to really clearly assert two things. And one is, is that gender is a thing. But the second part of that is that we need to be very, very careful about drawing limiting definitions around that that are hurtful to people and that have been defined by maybe our own individual experience or our cultural experience. So we're gonna try to find that line between those two things. I am that guy, uh, I mean, I do like an occasional football game and all those kinds of things, but I have showed up at more than one men's conference and I'm like, I'm not sure this is the kind of guy I am. They're like, we have a 40-foot chainsaw and a dead bear, let's do it. I'm like, I don't even know what we're doing. I don't even know what we're doing. What are we doing? You know, I just, that's not my way of being a guy. And, and we just need to be careful that we draw, don't draw too narrow of a line around us. Does that make sense? So can we ride that line a little bit and just say, we're gonna assert this is true, but we're also gonna make sure that we don't take that run with it and uh, do damage to ourselves and others. So tonight, are men and women really that different? Some of you are just like, yes, and now you're leaving. 
Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for, uh, for your creation. And we pray that we would lean deeply into that tonight, that we would believe that you have made this world in a way that is meaningful, in a way that is expressive of yourself, in a way that if we lean into it, it will help us know you better. And so we ask you that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You would help us to love and be loved better uh, by you and by people as a result of our time together tonight. I do pray for those of us that are in a marriage relationship that maybe we have a moment where you bring us to a point where we have to recognize there's something that has been challenging about our spouse, that there is something at the center of it which is really an expression of you. And we have to uh, maybe think about that a little bit differently. And I pray that you'd help us be more productive in our relationships because of that. So we pray you give us wisdom and insight, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Now I know that um, just about every time I talk about these subjects, um, I do go back to Genesis. And I sort of apologize for that, but I, I, I don't as well, because I think it's important that we go back to the beginning when we're going to talk about structure. And uh, if, I've, if you've heard me talk about marriage or sexuality at all, you know that's where we normally go. But if I can give you just the thumbnail sketch, as we say, when we normally go back to Genesis, if you go over to read a commentary or something like that, uh, you generally get one of two things. You either get a strong lean into what is the relationship between Genesis 1 through 3 and science, right? So what's going on with evolution and Genesis 1 through 3. The other thing that we can tend to do when we read it is we sort of just ask devotional questions. And neither of those are necessarily bad, but that is not what anybody in the ancient world is asking when they read Genesis 1 through 3. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as an atheist, so no one was wondering about whether there was a God. There was no such thing as evolution, so nobody was wondering about that. They were asking much more practical questions. So you're growing up in the ancient Middle East, the ancient Near East, and you wake up every day, and uh, you're hanging out with sheep, you kill sheep, you eat sheep, you go to sleep, you do that every day, 365 days a year. At some point, you're like, okay, is God you know, one God, many gods, one of the gods is real because I need a purpose in my life for all this living and killing of sheep and eating and sleeping and everything that I'm doing. And so the answers to the questions of like, is God knowable? What is God like? Who is God? That is what is happening in Genesis 1 through 3. And so when we open up the book of Genesis, we read chapter 1, it says, God spoke the world into existence. And again, we've said this before, so you walk in nature and you experience God's presence. The reason for that is you're walking in something God said to us. He's speaking to us there. Then he creates this image of God and says, I'm gonna give you the ability to ask questions using your brain. You're the only thing in the world that can do that. You have 100 billion neurosynaptic connections in your brain, so you can say, huh, I wonder why I'm here. I wonder what life is about, right? Y'all, everybody ask those questions? Yeah. The turtle doesn't, just you, okay, just you and me. And then, though, he does something breathtaking. He looks down at Adam, who is made image of God. Now, to the person who first heard that, who had never heard that before, that would have been breathtaking. They would have said, wait a minute, that radically reorients the relationship of who I am to the pantheon of the gods. I've gone from just being this kind of wandering thing down here and the gods are up here, to now I am actually deeply connected to God and I have a role to play in this creation as a representative of God. And then he says, I made man, as in the gender, and he is image of God, and now I'm going to make a female who is also the image of God. And for the very first time, 
in all of Genesis, we don't just get good, 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 we get, you know it, very good. And what those things are very good at is showing God to us in real space and time. Nature is good at showing God to us. Our thought life can be good about helping us explore God, but he says a male and a female, those two genders made uniquely, independently, but both in the image of God, amen? both fully in the image of God, together they are very good at reflecting God's image. So let's read Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And it says this, then the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. Amen, my wife's in Florida, it's awful. I will make a helper who is just right for him, but she's in Florida, I'm sorry, a little obsessed tonight. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but still no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. And the man exclaimed, at last. I think he said it just like that, at last. This one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man because she has ta was taken from the man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked but they felt no shame. We're gonna look at three kind of ideas tonight. First, the reality of gender. Second, the purpose of gender. And third, the implication that that might have for marriages and our relationships. So number one, the reality of gender. Now to begin our conversation, I probably need to do a little bit of explanation about how the word gender is being used culturally right now. So right now, gender is being used to describe how we understand a particular, either male or female, to be expressed culturally, emotionally, relationally, and experientially through the individual. Sex, on the other hand, defines the biological reality of that individual person. And so for the first time in history, we have an articulation of language that allows for what we would call gender dysphoria. That is for a person to have one sex but to somehow feel that the way that they express themselves as a person is not typical of that sex, but actually reflective of another gender. Now, what I want to do tonight, and the reason that I want to make that clear, is because I will be using the word slightly differently this evening in an effort to kind of frame that in a different context. For the purposes of our conversation, I'm going to be treating sex, which is the biological reality, chromosomes, genitalia, hormone structures. I'm going to be treating sex as though it is inextricably linked to gender, and I hope that I can demonstrate uh, why that is, and that both of those are inextricably linked to being a uh, reflection of the image of God. If I can give you the nutshell before we get into the mechanics of it, the reality is, is that who we are, what you think of as yourself, if I say who you are, your consciousness, your consciousness grows out of your brain. We all good with that? Like if you're thinking about yourself in words, we can see that in a little brain scan of you. If you think something, we can see it blipping across your brain, okay? And the case that I wanna make to you is that your body, your hormones, and your brain are gendered. And therefore the consciousness, or I should say sexed in the language of the culture, and that your consciousness is the product of 
your body, your hormones, and your brain, and therefore has a gender which is, has to be generated by its own biological reality. Okay, so that's the case that I wanna make, and we'll tease that out just a little bit, okay? But it is important to note that there are some exceptions to this. Exceptions can be chromosomal. People can actually be born not XX or XY. They can be born XXY or just X. Uh, some of us were like, well, I was born triple X. It wasn't the Dunkin' Donuts. I just did that to myself, you know. <laughs> Sorry. But that's only about one, it, and the conservative side, it's one in a thousand people. On the generous side, it's one in 5,000 people. And the vast majority of people who are born either chromosomally or genitalia or hormonally, uh, uh, not on that sort of usual spectrum, in the vast majority of those cases, if we do a biological examination, it is very clear what the dominant gender is. And so, for instance, we might have a child who is born, and they may have uh, a 90% proponents of female genitalia, but there is some instance that the clitoris has begun to develop into a penis. That's not that abnormal. But when we look at, we do a scan, we can see they're developing the insides as though they were a female, everything else is developing as female. Simple surgery, everything is usually normal, maybe a little bit of hormone treatment. That most of those are very, very obvious what the dominant sex is, and it can be tracked either chromosomally or by the, the internal structure of the child and can be taken care of in that way. There's a very, very small amount also that is hormonal, but we can track that biologically. So when I say that someone is hormonally uh, misgendered, what we mean by that is that there has been a physical problem that actually makes their hormonal structure not align with their chromosomes and with their genitalia structure, okay? So what we're not talking about is someone who's just saying, I have a feeling, although that could happen as a result of this. We're talking about something that we can actually see on a biological scan, okay? Um, I will give you, by the way, uh, uh, resources that I'm using, but the vast majority of the science that I'm going to use here is drawn from the first two resources that I'll give later, which are books I highly recommend. I've um, recommended them probably hundreds of times. That's Luann Brizendine's uh, The Female Brain and the Male Brain. Highly, highly recommend those. So let's ask this question. What makes up sex and gender? Well, three things. The first is chromosomes. We're probably all familiar with that. Generally speaking, when a child is conceived, it either has a 2X chromosome match, which is a female, or an XY. And once those chromosomes are in place, those chromosomes sequence this developing feed is to release a hormone structure and a growth structure that is consistent with that chromosomal match. And so immediately we have the beginning development of genitalia and we have release of a sequence of waves of hormones. And a lot of us maybe are not aware that people actually experience three puberties. We don't just experience one because puberty really is just a wash of hormones that go throughout our system. And we experience one when we're in our mother's womb. We experience one between the ages of zero and two, and we experience another in what we traditionally think of as puberty. And as that begins to happen in the womb, uh, when, the, when the girl is developing in the womb, she gets far lower doses of testosterone in this little hormone bath. And testosterone, if you don't know, actually destroys, it is parasitic to communication circuits. <laughs> Which is why boys tend to talk later but even in the womb, most female brains are busy developing internal linguistic and external linguistic communication circuits long before males. 
Also, the 2x structure actually makes it, because the x has to match with an x as things grow, it makes it so the female brain actually grows faster and it expands across both lobes more easily because all of this matching that happens in there. So even in the womb, the girl's brain tends to think more interconnectedly, more holistically, and grows faster. That's why girls tend to develop a little bit sooner, develop a little bit earlier, because all of that is happening. For the boys, testosterone is being released. Uh, that, again, takes energy away from the communication circuits, and it gives it to things like, let's develop your body. Let's develop your exploratory and curiosity parts of your brain. And let's explore, even at in the womb, uh, male sexual circuitry is beginning to be developed, even in the womb. Between zero and two years of age, we get this second wash, <clears throat> and... Um, Girls get this, again, another big dose of estrogen, and it continues to create verbal circuits. Now, one thing I want to say that's really important is because sometimes we'll be in a situation like this where we'll be like, well, I, I was a girl who didn't fit that model, or I was a girl who didn't fit that mode. You'll hear me say over and over again, there are a lot of indicators, and only 8% of males and females have every neurological indicator for their gender. The vast majority of us are a mix. But that doesn't mean that gender is something that goes from A to Z. If we look at brain scans, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, and we look at indicators, um, the vast, 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 vast majority of people have a dominant set of indicators that are consistent with their chromosomes, consistent with their hormone structure, and consistent with their genitalia, okay? But we shouldn't look at this and go, well, I wasn't verbal when I was that age. There are all kinds of other things that can come into play. Trauma can come into play. That can be something that impacts it. All kinds of things. Physical things could impact it. Maybe we have a lisp and so we don't want to talk. We feel self-conscious about it. It could be all kinds of things. Does that make sense? Again, trying to keep that, that dance a little bit, okay? So as the estrogen is released, verbal circuits continue. And because of all the interdependent kind of connection in the brain, girls younger tend to think about real life and they tend to want to reproduce real life in play. Tend to. Boys, on the other hand, get another wash of testosterone. <laughs> which spurs further circuits of exploration and curiosity. And in this period, uh, those are super common for kids. They want to, for boys, they want to see everything, they want to explore everything, they want to take everything apart. They want to move, body development begins to happen, and again, sexual desire already is growing in the child at zero to one or two years old in boys. Now, in traditional puberty for girls, it happens around two years earlier. Now, we know that actually some of the things in our food products are changing this. Uh, that's kind of a little bit of a moving target, but traditionally, it's been about two years earlier. Girls, for the first time, get a much more complex uh, release of these hormones. They get estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone begins for the very first time in any real quantity, which is why all of a sudden we go from having a girl, a young girl who is not interested in boys, to a girl who is very interested in boys. Now, I wanna make a distinction there. That doesn't mean that they don't have pleasure circuits in the body earlier than that, so that a young child who's a, a young female who's exposed to pornography, or a young child who's sexualized before that age, certainly can still, uh, can still experience sexual pleasure and can be engaged that way, but in terms of connecting bodily desire, relational desires, one sexual matrix, that begins to happen when the testosterone is released, generally speaking. Now, I know those of you who have boys, who has boys that are like 11 years age, of age or older in here? Boys receive a 20-fold increase in testosterone, virtually shutting down the verbal communication circuits. 
the brain scan of an 11 to 13 year old boy almost looks like someone who is a mute. They also, desire, they also get hyper body sensitivity, which explains why when you go up to your 11 year old and you go to touch them, they shrivel like an assault on a snail. Like they feel everything. The other thing that happens is because again, a testosterone is taking over all of the circuitry. The auditory, their hearing ability, literally moves to the background of their brain. And I know all of the wives will understand what I mean when I say this, it never comes back. It comes about halfway back, but it never again, their entire life fully rebounds. Now you can believe that's gender or brain damage, but it is science. Whichever way you want to believe. During that time as well, uh, for the young guys, I found this to be fascinating. The male face is moved into a part of the brain that recognizes hostile threats. So if you were a dad of an 11, 12, 13 year old boy and all of a sudden he's fighting you about everything, his brain, the minute he sees you, is telling him that you're a hostile. <laughs> Some of us are just like, I just got a revelation from the Lord. Their bodies are doing all kinds of crazy things. Their sleep cycles change, language circuits shut down, all of that sort of thing. The final, we have these three washes. We have chromosomes, we have hormones, and genitalia. The final becomes the full development of genitalia and hormones that leads to a further sexual-specific brain development, body development, and a unique emotional landscape for each gender as the fruit of these three waves of hormones in the body. And I'll give you some idea of the differences that exist in male and female brains. And these things tend to be about 70 or 80% uh, per person or per instance. So if I were to say something is dominant in women over men, that will be true in 70 to 80% of the cases. But remember, we have a whole sort of palette of normative ideas and a person might have seven out of 10, they might have eight out of 10, nine out of 10, and that doesn't make them less female, it doesn't make them more male, it means that God needed a whole lot of different kinds of people to adequately reflect what it meant to be in his image. That's what it meant, okay? So in the brain, there are significant differences though. For instance, the anterior cingulate cortex is larger in women, it is what causes worry, but it is also what engenders deep compassion and care. If it is of interest to you, so it is called the worry cortex sometimes, it never shuts off. It is on while women are sleeping. It is on while they're relaxing. The only two times that we know it shuts off with any regularity are under anesthesia. <laughs> I guess if we add death, that would be a third, but. The other time is actually at the very pinnacle of a very rewarding orgasm. Now, I actually want you to think about that for a second, because what it says is the only time, one of the only times in a female's life where she feels no need to worry is when she is fully surrendered to a person that she trusts. We might want to salah on that just a little bit. The prefrontal cortex that regulates emotions, especially the amygdala, fight or flight, develops earlier in women and is larger. Now that being said, we know that develops in women earlier, but we also know that it's developing while we're having these huge releases of hormones in puberty, and so it seems to be a little bit of a zero-sum game there for a little while. The insula hyperprocesses whole databanks of information. This is larger in women, and it's responsible for women's intuition. There's this lovely little part of the brain that is larger in women that basically takes all of that interconnected network and when it sees somebody without even asking you as a woman, it's like a superpower. 
Your brain takes everything you know about everything and everything you know about this person and everything you know about the environment, it processes it, and instead of giving you a thought, because that would take too long, it just gives you a feeling. It's amazing. Now, it's not always right, but it is a lot of times. It processes an incredible amount of data in a short amount of time. The amygdala uh, is larger in men, which of course can be responsible for fight or flight, but it can also be responsible for immediate acts of heroism and immediate acts of valor in very difficult moments and situations. The hippocampus, which is the hallmark channel of the brain, <laughs> is larger in women. <laughs> And it's what produces tender moments and romantic encounters and, oh, by the way, grudges. The medial preoptic area, two more, is 2.5 times larger in men and is an important contributor to libido. Interestingly enough, in women, it is directly connected to two important neurotransmitters. It's connected to vasopressin and oxytocin. So for women, the part of the body, the part of the brain that controls libido is directly fed by a trust hormone and a personal intimacy hormone. Again, Salah. And last one, the temporal um, uh, Parietal is, uh, junction is more active in males. It's the practical side of empathy. So if we have females who are empathic because they, they understand what's going on in this big picture, males have this part of the brain that's larger and it's what makes them say, something is wrong, I don't need to hear anything more about it, just let me fix it. And this is actually really important because if we, sometimes we can get cynical about this and we'll kind of land here at the end tonight, but we can get kind of cynical about these things. But realize that those things lie in a beautiful tension with each other that many of the things that we see that are reflective of, of sort of brain structures of male and female lie in a tension that tells us something important about God. It is equally true that we need to lean in and listen to people and understand their story and sit with people and weep with people and laugh with people. But it is also equally important that when the laughter is done and the weeping is done that we put on our belts and we help. Like, there's a beautiful tension there where if we listen to each other and we lean into each other, we actually wind up with a more meaningful, well-rounded, productive view of God's activity in humanity. So instead of leaning away from it and saying, well, my, son, my husband, he doesn't want to listen to me, he just wants to fix it, and instead of a husband saying, well, my wife doesn't want me to fix it, she just wants, to, wants me to listen to her whine, I'm making this up. I don't know one would ever say things like this. I'm, I'm making it up. I met a sinner couple one time that said it. <laughs> and they're here to, no, I'm just kidding, I'm, I'm, kidding, I'm kidding. But instead of that, like leaning into it and going, there is something at the core of that that is God, that God made to reflect his image. And instead of, instead of undignifying it, maybe if we dignified it, it would become more healthy. That makes more sense. Now again, not every one of these is true uh, for every individual. As I said, only 8% of people contain every marker for their gender, and 53% have a key marker in uh, a gender that is in, or in an area that is not consistent with their chromosomal structure, their genitalia structure, and their hormone structure. But what's important, though, out of this is what we're saying is that a person has chromosomes, they then have genitalia, they then have hormones, that then develop into a full body and a full brain that are all gendered. The product of that human experience is consciousness. It is you. And the product of that then, it is very difficult to imagine how it could be other than the thing that has produced it. Does that make sense? 
Now that doesn't mean that we can't create cultural situations where that becomes difficult. That doesn't mean that we can't experience trauma that can make that difficult that can make that difficult. It doesn't mean that we can have a cultural narrative that makes us feel as though we don't fit in a particular perspective. That doesn't mean any of that. But instead of, what I'm saying is maybe instead of looking at from a perspective that says these things are two separate entities, one has to ask how we get to that logic. When everything we know is that that consciousness is the fruit of a gendered body, a gendered chromosome, a gendered hormone structure, and a gendered brain. And maybe we need to ask what the dysfunction is that's causing us to feel that way rather than assuming that there is a distinction, that that could perhaps be helpful to us. Number two, the purpose of gender. So we've already looked at Genesis chapter two, and I wanna suggest to you in just brief a couple of reasons that gender is really important. And we've, we've hinted at them already. The first is that God's image isn't complete in humanity until the creation of both genders. And if I can give you some simple examples of that, um, that are maybe helpful for us to think about. I think that a lot of, as I mentioned, these tensions of gender that we see play out in real human experience are really important expressions of God that would be very difficult to embody in a single individual. So if we think about something as simple as what we've already mentioned of someone being a whole integrated thinker, um, we know, for instance, women are whole integrated thinkers. They tend to be much, much better at it. That is one of the reasons we know that if we have more than 25% of female leadership in an organization, the whole organization tends to be healthier. Why is that? Well, because they think about the whole organization. That's the way they think. And it's a wonderful gift to the organization to be able to think, well, gosh, I wonder how this very personal thing about this group of people is actually gonna impact what we're trying to do as an organization or as a company. On the flip side of that, how many know if we're always trying to take that into account, like there is a way in which we go, hey, we have an objective and we need to make sure that we're moving toward that as well. Neither of those in and of themselves are all bad, neither of them are all good, but if they work together in a way that puts attention on each other, you can end up with a really productive and healthy organization. The same thing can happen in the family where we have one person who's thinking about the implications of everything for everybody in my family. And again, if you're a female, doesn't fit that mold, male doesn't fit that mold, remember what, what we've said, okay? But in my family, we fit that mold. I can tell you everything we do is healthier because my wife thinks through all the scenarios. How is it gonna impact this child? How's it gonna impact this child? How is, how is this relative gonna think if we didn't include them in this? She just thinks all of that. And me, I'm just like, this is gonna be awesome! You know, that's me. I'm just like, let's do it, you know? And that's me and everything, jumping off cliffs, whatever it is, and she's like, I'll call the hospital. You know, that's just, she's already got him on speed dial because she's thinking about all those things. But it's a beautiful, beautiful tension that lies there. Another example might be the varying libidos. Now, can we just do real talk here for a second? Is that cool? I mean, we've already said words, so we're good. <laughs> we've already said words. But the reality is for most people, most people, most people, libido tends to be higher in the guy, tends to be less in the female. And I actually think that's a really beautiful thing. I think it's a beautiful thing that the man's body is visionary and is immediate and is, and is goal-driven and that a female's body tends to say, hey, let's slow down and let's take something that's awesome and let's make it meaningful. That's a beautiful tension. 
And instead of leaning away from that and saying, why are we always having conflict over this? Why do we always, have, why, why is it, instead of that, leaning into it and saying, what is God trying to teach me about the beauty of this relationship? Like, maybe it's okay for one of us to go, hey, maybe it's okay for me to jump in at the deep end sometimes and another person to say, maybe I need to make sure that I'm slowing down and I'm not just looking for experiences, but I'm looking for meaningfulness and relationship and moments that are really special. Maybe both those things actually work really well together. It's almost like God designed this to teach us something. It's almost like we're made uniquely in the image of God to learn things about God that we wouldn't learn through our own experience. Does that make sense? Theologically, there is a deep importance put on loving the other, and I have in my notes, other on quote, because someone being other than us implies something. It implies they have different perspectives, different experiences, different often values. If we were to go around this room, if you were a Christ follower and I were to ask you what are the 10 most important things about Christianity, we'd probably put a pretty similar list of things down on that. But then if I asked you, I want you to put them in order, all of a sudden I bet we'd have some, some differences, wouldn't we? We say, well, I, I place this a little higher than you. And you know what the difference is there? Experience, perspective, like what we've been through, what we've walked through, those things impact us. And learning to love the other is a skill. And we learn that by God going, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a little life lesson that's going to last your entire married life on you learning to love the other. On you learning to listen and lean in and go, I never thought about it that way, would never have thought about, that way, about it that way in a million years. Like I could have run all the scenarios from now until next Tuesday and I never would have thought of it that way. And all of a sudden you realize, but the way they think about it is, is often has a beauty to it and is right and is good and teaches me to be more like God. I know, and, and I, hopefully we can take this um, in, a, in a nuanced way, but how many here who are Christ followers would say, I want to be like, like God? I mean, that's the goal, right? We're Imago Dei and we're trying to go back home to our most God-like version of ourselves. That's, that's the goal. And I, I believe this, you take it for what's like, I don't believe that, that, that men need to become, or w women or women need to become men, but I do believe that in my quest to be like God, there are things about my wife that I will take on as attributes over time that make me more like God. That my wife will help me become more like God in the unique ways that she is as a woman that will make me more like a God who is neither man or woman. You maybe put that in there and think about it for just a minute. Number three, the implications of gender for our marriage relationships. Now, one thing I wanna say um, is that I think it's really important that we posture ourselves in our marriage relationships as mutual learners. Um, I'm not sure what, what model you've, you've been under, but maybe I can give us a little bit of hermeneutic help real quick and I'll give us one example and, uh, and then I'll provide us some resources and we'll be done. But sometimes maybe we've been raised in a model where we, we kinda have like the guys here and he's the teacher, and then we have the, the wife, and she's the subcontracted labor for the teacher. <laughs> and then we have the kids who are minions. <laughs> and that part is true. <laughs> the kids are minions. They're leeches on society. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, gas prices, grocery prices, they got me feeling the hurt. That's all I'm saying. But if I can, if I can like press on that just for a second, 
Because some of us maybe, before we start learning from each other, actually maybe need to start thinking about each other a little bit differently. And some of that actually comes from a misinterpretation of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul looks at the Ephesians and he says, uh, Ephesian people, all of you, I want you to love one another as Christ has loved you. So, so far we're not talking anything about gender. It's just everybody ought to love everybody. Like you, if you and I just met, you deserve for me to love you like Jesus loves you. You, you just deserve that. It doesn't matter whether you're male, female, what you are. And then in 523, and this is where it gets really interesting, he says, oh, by the way, I also want all of you to submit to each other. Whoa. I, no one has submitted to me since I've been in this room. I'm kidding. But then all of a sudden we jump over to the next section and there's a little break. And how many know those breaks in the Bible sometimes can mislead us? And all of a sudden it says, husbands, I want you to love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's a subsection of what it said in one and two where we're all supposed to love each other. That in no way, shape, or form means that wives are not supposed to love their husbands as Christ loves the church. It is addressing a specific pastoral problem in the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was female dominated. They, the city they believe was founded by the Amazons. They had more female governors than any other city in the ancient world. The government and the religious apparatus were run by women. It was a matriarchal society. The flip of often what we've experienced. And so what it's saying is no, you actually can't resent your wife for exercising power over you. You have to love her. And then it looks at the husband and it it, or it looks at the wife and it says, and you, you need to get back into order, not that you need to be submissive to him, but to where you're both submitting to each other. So they both need to be loving each other and they both need to be submitting to each other. And I think it's very difficult for us both to learn from each other until we get to the place where we both love each other and we both are willing to submit to each other. So sometimes that can be a little bit of a reordering that needs to take place before we can be productive with these gender differences. Let me give you just one example of, of how this might work out in real life, if you were to ever have an actual conflict in your marriage. And I'll use the example of the male and female different ways of caring. Um, men, as I already mentioned, uh, we function uh, out of that little junction box in our brain and the amygdala. And men often show compassion, as I said, by doing something. And while men can certainly learn to listen better, anybody want to say amen? <laughs> there were some men that were like, I know, I'm busted. <laughs> Women can learn to interpret that desire to solve the problem as speaking in a vocabulary of care. It can go both ways. I know there are five love languages and we all need to learn to speak the one that our partner hears best. But it's also valuable if we learn to hear the one that our partner speaks best. Women are often the why did this thing happen and the how will this affect and the who will this impact of the situation. Men are often the what are we doing, going to do to fix it. Solving the problem can be constructive, but it can also be destructive. It can say, there's been injustice, go get a mob. Let's fix this thing. 
not thinking through the implications of who else might become injured during the process of solving the problem. It could also be perceived as dismissive or cold. Yeah, 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 stop talking. I'll, I'll fix this thing right now. So when a man tries to fix something before you're ready, maybe instead of saying, you always do this, maybe we can say something like, I know that you feel like you are caring for me. And I appreciate it. And I do want it fixed. But before I do that, I would also like to get my head and heart wrapped around it. And it helps me to talk about it. Would you do that with me? And often women show empathy and care by talking about it, trying to understand how it's impacted the person. And maybe in a moment like that, if we're a man and we're just like, I just wanna fix the problem, I just wanna take care of you, I just want it to be done so that the problem or the stress or the pain or, or the inconvenience or whatever it is will go away. Maybe in that moment, instead of saying, yeah, 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 you know, and spacing out until they're done and still letting the auditory parts of our brain be only halfway developed, we can lean in and, and say, the thing that I really want to do to love you is to go fix this right now. But I also know that it will be so much more meaningful to you if I'm deeply connected to what I'm fixing and how it impacts you. So talk on. Teach me to slow down. I'll, I'll be ready, my, my tool belt will be waiting as soon as we're done or whatever it is that needs to be taken care of. But you see how if we do it that way, instead of, instead of leaning away from it and making it a wedge, we can lean into it and say there's something important happening here. There's something important happening. And again, this can be incredibly mixed. Some of us will have areas that, that don't fit because we've We've been through stuff. Others of us have great exposure to a parent who's the other gender than us that develops something in us that is like God, that maybe wouldn't be the norm for other girls or other guys at our age, and that's okay. But what's not okay is if we don't recognize that all of these things that make us human, all of these things that make us who we are is the wide variety of men and women who are here is if we don't recognize those things as going all the way back to the garden and being a part of God's desire to make himself known through our imageness to each other. We don't get to dismiss each other's strengths. We don't get to look at the worst version of those strengths and read that back onto every other experience of those strengths. Instead, what we get to do is we get to lean in. And I don't know about you, it's probably true for you as well, we could probably go around the room, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you have ever, if you and I have ever been in relationship and you have ever been loved by me, there's a reason for that and her name is Pam. Uh, before I met her, uh, I was a bulldozer. I'm an, an I said an eight. <laughs> They have words for eights. None of them I can say here. And I like to get things done. And I like to change things that aren't right. And, 
and she likes to love people. She likes people to be well. And I have a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's system works, that it does good things if we lean into it and we lean hard. So let me share a couple of resources with you. I'm gonna pray and uh, then we're gonna take some time in worship. And maybe some of us will be like, note to self, I need to talk to my husband or my wife and tell them I'm sorry for thinking that was from Satan, that was actually from God, <laughs> and correct ourselves. A few resources, number one, uh, this will not be up on the screen, but during the month of March, coming into Entrance I, there will be a small group. If you are a person, you say, I have a, a grandchild or a child or a cousin or a brother or a sister or a parent who uh, is, is going through the process, is come out as homosexual, is come, going through the process of wondering what their relationship to their gender and their sexuality is, and you wanna be a part of a group of people who can help resource you, who can help walk through that with you, every Sunday night at six o'clock here, led by our own Michael Daniels, come in entrance I, that group will be meeting for the month of March. And no, no big agenda other than just resource and care for each other. Figure out how do, we, how do we do what Pastor always says, grace and truth. How do we walk that line in the relationships that God has given us? But second, I think these resources will be up on the screen for you. I mentioned Luann Brizendine. Those gonna be up there? Let's see, there we go, the male and the female brain. Um, all I will tell you about those, not written by Christ followers, so there might be a couple things that you go, oh, I don't know about that. That's great. She has compiled what must be thousands of hours of gender-related neuro and biological research into one kind of TED Talk level volume that is a treasure trove of information. It will make you a better parent, it'll make you a better spouse, and it'll make you better to yourself. You'll understand what's going on with you. So if you could stand that, they're not expensive either. On the issues related to transgenderism, Preston Sprinkles Embodied, Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body, and Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, um, all very, very good and helpful. If you wanna start with one, I highly recommend the Preston Sprinkle. It's excellent and it's both practical and theological and pastoral how we work through those issues.